Welcome to the Fishers of Men podcast, brought to you by us at So Much Media. I'm Mary Ashley Burton. I'm Laura Samara Sands. This podcast is about relationships and your walk with Jesus. It's about the true stories of Christian men and women's struggles with chastity, sex, marriage, and relationships in a post-Christian culture. Fishers of Men podcast. Here we are with Father Tim Grumbach at St. Augustine's Catholic Church in Culver City, California. And thank you so much for talking with us today. It's my pleasure, my honor. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> yeah, um, I think this will be fun. Um, so basically you are a baby priest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag baby priest. It's probably the, probably the worst thing I've ever put on Twitter, but I can't get away from it now. <laughs> what does that mean? How long... I've been ordained about four months, four and a half months now or so, okay. and so the, the etiquette is that your whole first year as a priest, you're baby priest, and then no. if you really want to take it another step further, the second year, you're a toddler priest, but thankfully that, <laughs> has, that hashtag hasn't caught on with the guys who were ordained before me, so <laughs> I tried to hide it. <laughs> Fantastic. Awesome. Um, so since you're a baby priest, um, and you're a young-ish guy, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we thought it would be really interesting to talk to you um, kind of about your ideas, having been in relationships before and choosing celibacy, but how that's affecting your ministry now and mm-hmm. like what you're bringing into your priesthood or your priestly ministry now from your past life. Mm-hmm. And um, I understand you may have some interesting theories yeah. about... <laughs> The church related to, well, you have some romance metaphors. Uh, yeah, I mean, if if we don't have romance metaphors in the church, we're not church. You know, it's that's, yeah. that goes back to the beginning. That's that's scriptural. That's that's Old Testament stuff. That's God, you know, breaking into into this world and and reminding us of the, the intimacy that He wants with us. And so to have those romance metaphors, we can't run away from those. Mm. I mean, we're, we're living in a theology of the body church, and if we can't talk about you know sexuality or even use it as a metaphor, an analogy of sorts, uh, for our intimacy with God that he calls us to, then we're not really living the, the wedding feast of the Lamb, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, it, it's been there since the beginning. So, yeah. Just in a, uh, more explicit ways than others sometimes. So, yeah. But so, like, uh, I know that you always are putting the hashtag sloppy wet kiss. Mm-hmm. So yeah. how did you come to... Yeah, that's been my crusade of late. Uh, team, team, <laughs> hashtags team sloppy wet. Um, I didn't start it, but um, what it actually refers to is a, a song that a lot of people are familiar with, um, especially through David Crowder, uh, called How He Loves. Um, but Crowder was part of the writing process, but he wasn't the original writer of the song. It was written by a, a guy named John Mark McMillan, mm-hmm. um, who is behind a lot of songs that we, mm-hmm. we don't yeah. realize. But uh, an amazing songwriter, um, the, the lyrics he, he throws down are just, there's something very real about it. it you know, he even admits, like, I try not to write praise and worship songs, mm-hmm. but sometimes they come out. Um, <laughs> and uh, I shouldn't put those words in his mouth, but that's how it seems. Uh, and um, this song, How He Loves, gives this image of God's love. And he, he says it's not a, a Hollywood, hot, pink, fuzzy kind of love. It's the kind of love where God's still reaching into our lives even when we're mad at him, even when we're angry at him. And so some of the lyrics are, you know, your, your love's like a, like a hurricane and I'm a tree in the wind. Uh, yeah. You know, if, if grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it comes to like this, this 
climactic moment where he sings heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss. And um, the story goes that that Crowder, knowing the people he was singing to and um, kind of their experience of church, felt it was prudent to change the words to unforeseen kiss, um, from sloppy wet to unforeseen. You know, which is beautiful too, because so often in this world it feels like God's so far away, and uh, that that anything He would do would be unexpected. It's like God doesn't work miracles anymore, does He? Mm. Um, and so it's just in our in our loneliness we we think it would be so nice just for this unforeseen kiss that I wasn't expecting. I just want God to reach into my life right now to do something to make Himself known, like an unforeseen kiss. And I think that's really beautiful. Um, but uh, John Mark McMillan explains himself and says, it, it's, it's got to be sloppy wet because um, sometimes our, our experience of love is just messy. Uh, mm-hmm. And so he, he explains that the song was written the, the day after a good friend of his died in a car crash. Oh, uh, and so you know, without even really the chance to say goodbye. Um, so a lot of the times we think that sloppy wet kiss is kind of like the, the dog comes running up and licks your face and like, oh, that's adorable and, and sloppy and wet and messy. Um, but the sloppy wet that he's talking about is, you know, I imagine it this way, is that you've got um, someone over their loved one who's dying and it's the last moments of their life. And, um, and they just kind of lay, lay this kiss on their forehead just to say goodbye. And there's, there's tears, there's sweat, there's mm-hmm. snot. It's just messy. It's sloppy and it's wet. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of his encounter at that moment when he's writing this song is he's, he's mad at God for what's happening and, and he's not hiding that because if we hide that, we're you know, missing the point of how intimate God wants to get with us. Like God can take it. Yeah. You know, if, if God's afraid of our anger at him or afraid of you know, our doubt in him, then he's not really God. He's just this kind of pernicious, you know, envious, like who worries about how we feel about him and then just kind of pushes us away if we're angry with him. But that's not his experience of God. That's not what he's singing about. And so... A lot of people hear sloppy wet kiss and they think, oh, it's like this adorable puppy dog laying kisses all over our faces. But instead, what he's singing about is the, the messiness of like the end of a life when, when God's love is still there. Because if God's love's not in that place, it's not love. Mm. If God's not in that place, he's not God. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I'm throwing into the, the conversation whenever I can, is that, look, you know... Um, Unforeseen is great. I've got nothing against unforeseen. But when we're talking about the, the reality of God reaching into these moments, which I get to see a lot of as a priest, um, and I've only been a priest for four, four and a half months, something like that. Um, just the, the kind of places that I've been called into and the places I was called into just as a seminarian and as a deacon and, and the places that people invite us into in their lives. Sometimes it's, it's sloppy and wet and messy. And, mm-hmm. and if we pretend that's not, that's not a real experience with God, then we're missing out on something. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as uh, some of the great poets would say, that God misses out on us, and we miss out on him. So, uh, so it's a, you know, Team Sloppy Wet sounds kind of cute and adorable, and just is kind of, you know, whatever. But for me, that's kind of the foundation of, of my experience with God and my ministry to people in the reality of their lives. There's only so much you can say in 140 characters, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's, uh, that's my sloppy wet rant, and, I'm, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. thanks for that rant. And yeah. I think that's really beautiful, and it sounds like, too, you're bringing a lot of your personal experience mm-hmm. to your ministry, yeah. and you're not trying to shut yourself 
off from your past or right. from the experiences you've had in the world, which is cool because I feel like, um, especially with older generations, we kind of can get into the trap of idolizing priests a little mm-hmm. bit mm-hmm. and um, believing that they're like superhuman yeah. or, you know. <laughs> it'd be a lot easier if we were, I think. Yeah, yeah, it'd be easier for everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the, the perspective some people have that we're kind of superhuman, um, it, it, I think it hurts us in a way because um, then they kind of feel like maybe we don't need the same human, human interaction that everybody else needs. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just asked last week um, as I was giving a talk up in Santa Barbara and one of the questions was, as lay people, what can we do for our priests? And uh, you know, the, the gut answer was give us more money. But, um, but I, I had to qualify that and, and, and say, no, that's not really it. Um, what we need most, though, is um, Pope Francis gave a beautiful talk about this not too long ago, saying our priests need authentic friendship from our lay people. Um, because so much of our experience with the majority, the vast majority of our parishioners is Sundays after Mass on their way out. Like we're standing outside the, the front of the church and they come out and ask for a quick blessing, we give them a quick, quick blessing, which is beautiful. Um, or they, they shake our hands, say, great homily, Father, even if it was the, uh, the deacon or the other priest who was preaching. Um, but just, uh, it's, that's kind of their way of showing their appreciation for all the ministry that we do. We're aware of that. And we'll take every little affirmation we can get with all the other kind of stuff that right. we have to deal with during the week. I mean, I'm no pastor, I, but I see some of the stuff that is happening here as far as administration goes. And, um, it's not exactly what I look forward to, but it's a part of the ministry that I'm called into. Um, and so I, I see those stresses that come with, uh, with running a parish. It's not, you know, some people think we only work on Sundays. Right. You know, some people literally like think that, yeah, like, oh, yeah. I want to be a priest because I only have to work on Sundays. Right. That'd be great. You know? Yeah, they don't see um, the rest. Yeah, you know, but that's the easy part in, in a way. That's the yeah. easy part. Um, I, I, I love preaching, so I, I, I really enjoy the process of preparing my homilies and being able to present them on Sundays. And, um, but at the end of Mass, it starts to feel a little bit like a reception line sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know? No matter how, the quality of the homily, people will always come up and say, oh, that was a great homily, Father. Thank you. Um, and I want to stay with each one of them sometimes for like 10 minutes and just say, okay, well, what struck you about it? And, yeah. you know, or, or even, what can I do better next time? Or, mm, or, yeah. Um, but it's this, in a way, superficial encounter because they're on their way to the next thing. And I've got a, hundreds of other people to, to greet yeah. after Mass. Um, so the majority of our interaction with the majority of our parishioners is for seconds at a time at the end of a Sunday Mass. Mm. And uh, for an introvert as myself, though I, I often hide that, that is exhausting right? because as an introvert, I want to be with a person at a time and just spend time with them um, and then have my space to myself. But interaction after interaction to feel like I'm in a reception line yeah. is even more exhausting because I, I want to know that person's name. I want to, you know, I want to know their story, but they come and they go. So what I'm left with at the end of a Sunday is, <clears throat> Oh, it would have been nice to have Deeper interactions all day long would have been nice. You know, I'd be exhausted, but um, I will have felt like my, my day was, you know, there's something deeper about it. So, uh, 
So that authentic friendship is, is what the lay people can offer us as priests that will do our ministry the best. You know, and that, that includes you know, honest critique. Uh, here's what you can do better, Father. Uh, and I'm just asking for it now. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but the superficiality of it, that's a temptation, um, is so exhausting that the, um, the authentic friendship is what we need most from the lay people. Um, but there's also a level where we can only have that kind of intimate friendship among our brother priests mm-hmm. who know what it is that we're going through and understand uh, what it is to hear someone's deepest experiences where they feel they've failed God the most and failed their families and their friends the most while in confession and not be able to tell anyone, even our brother priests. Uh, but we understand how that feeling is between one another. Yeah. So to be together with our brother priests uh, is uh, another way that we kind of fulfill that, that, that need for authentic friendship. So that's kind of the, the Sunday experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then there's the experience of ministering in a parish that's, uh, I don't know, I think we're about 40% Hispanic. Uh, Spanish certainly not being my, my forte uh, or a, a natural language by any means. But I'm left with this sense of like, you know, I can't say what I want to say. And, the, and there becomes this barrier, and then ministry becomes even more exhausting because I, I, I feel so unimpressive. And, and, and so, I, yes, so we have these feelings and these, this knowledge about ourselves of how unimpressive we are, but people will put us on this pedestal, mm-hmm. and, and they'll hear me preach in Spanish for like five minutes and say, your Spanish is so good. And that's because I've been working on it all week. But there's a, a real fruitfulness to entering into that ministry and knowing that people have put me on a pedestal, but... I know my weaknesses and my unimpressiveness, but I can enter in those moments and know that it's, it's Jesus that's going to be doing the real work when I'm yeah, least impressive. Yeah. Um, uh, so the pedestal is a scary thing because it, it separates us when what we're really longing for is that authentic friendship like anyone else. Yeah, because so. yeah, you don't stop having those needs for a relationship. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think they become deeper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so kind of, Going on that topic, can you talk about choosing syllabacy? I'm trying to think of a well, yeah, because euphemistic of, yeah. way to say yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> choice. Yes, the yeah. choice. The choice is so so important because if it's not a choice, then yeah, it's not really celibacy. Right. You know, it's um, you know, bad I think luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess so. I mean, that's one way to put it. You know, um, um, or just not being able to, you know, to hear the God, the call God is giving to us to, yeah. into celibacy, and just kind of fighting against that, and then feeling like, oh, I'm so so, so unlucky. Um, but uh, you know, the, the temptation is to think I became a priest, you know, because my relationships didn't work out. So, mm. you know, Plan B, seminary. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I often begin my vocation story by by, by telling the the terrible but limiting joke of. Uh, you know, my, my surfing career didn't pan out. My, my girlfriend and I broke up, so I entered the seminary, <laughs> you know, plan B. Um, but then you start getting, you start hearing all these vocation stories about priests who are like, oh, my uh, my career didn't work out, so I joined the seminary, or my girlfriend dumped me, so I joined the seminary. It becomes terribly depressing it, it, mm. it, where it seems like the priesthood was just, gosh, I wanted to do everything else, but <sighs> God wanted me to be a priest, darn it, you know. Um, but, uh, gosh, um, I came across this, is this it? Um, something JP2 had said, uh, theology of the body is so amazing and yeah. so deep and so challenging. But he said that 
through the seriousness and depth of the decision. So the choice, right? You know, choice is a good word. It's a fine word for celibacy. Okay, okay, okay. Through severity and responsibility, it brings with it what shines and gleams is love. Love as the readiness to make the exclusive gift of self for the kingdom of God. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because the church talks about celibacy as a as a charism, like literally as a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's it's something that's not just for us. And I think that's um, that's the difference between bad luck mm-hmm. and the choice. Bad luck is like a, a turning in on oneself, like oh my my luck is so mm-hmm. bad and I'm so alone. But the charism, any charism in the church is meant to be, is meant to turn the person outward to the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, the catechism says it's, it's for the building up of the community. It's for the goods and the, the needs of, of humankind. And it's, it's meant to, to make the gospel known. So celibacy needs to be spoken of, yes, as a choice, but it's a choice because we receive it as a gift. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's uh, one of the dangers of speaking of celibacy is, is to use the word renunciation. There's a certain renunciation involved. There's renunciation involved in marriage where a person becomes celibate towards everybody in the world but one other person. So there's a huge amount of renunciation. And then within the relationship itself, there's a huge amount of renunciation, that death to self, one mm. could say. So those are a couple of the most important words when speaking of celibacy, at least theologically. You know, practically, it, it's, it's the team sloppy wet. You know, right. it's, it's just as messy uh, relationally. It can be just as messy relationally as uh, a marriage in different ways, just as much so in, in being called to the single life. Uh, but those are a couple of words that need to be remembered when speaking of celibacy is renunciation, yes, but also charism, renunciation and reception. Because if it's not received as a gift in thanksgiving, then it becomes this bitter turning inward of, of oh, I can't love a single another person. Why me? Yeah, why, why me? Why, why, why does the priesthood have to be so, so lonely? Married couples will say the same. Why does marriage have to be so lonely? Um, so that's one of the big things where, where we encounter in the seminary when preparing to t- make our promises. Because in the seminary, you live the celibate life without having made the promises that right. you make for ordination. But you, you know, so you make a promise of sorts to live as, as, you know, as required in seminary life to prepare for the priesthood. So it's not just like one day, oh man, <laughs> well, I guess it's time to make that promise and start to live this way. No, it's, it's about a, a, a human development that happens all the way through seminary. Uh, again, you'll probably hear me talk with John Paul II a lot, but when he kind of reformed the formation program for priests, um, he put a heavy emphasis on human formation, on relational formation. Yes, spiritual formation, so key. Yes, intellectual formation, pastoral information, uh, f- formation in order you know, that, that we might know how to relate to God, relate to, you know, to our people in ministry. But human formation, being able to relate to one another as seminarians, as priests, and with our people. He said that's probably the most important f- part of the formation process is human formation. Because there's a lot of stereotypes out there of these... these um, removed and reserved and dogmatic priests who just kind of appear on Sundays at the pulpit to tell their people what to do. Yeah. Um, I think it's a bad stereotype. I, you know, yeah. the, the priests I grew up around, and maybe there are some out there, right? That's just how they relate to people. But mm-hmm. So our seminary process, and um, especially I, I've seen it continue to grow, even just the eight years that, that I did seminary, the con- 
continued growth in the importance of human formation and our ability to relate to one another so that when we're priests, we have each other to fall back on. But also to see it in a theological light, if, if I can't relate to other people, how do I relate to God? Mm-hmm. And vice versa, if I can't be honest with God, how am I going to be honest with anybody else? Mm-hmm. So it becomes the cross, right? It's, it's this yes. vertical uh, yeah. relationship, and this, you know, the horizontal relationship is so important as well. Yeah. And that's the gospel we hear this Sunday is... You know, um, Love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, the, those two, on, on those two, the, the prophets and the law depend. They mm-hmm. hinge. So, so that becomes key to our, our formation is making sure we, just, we know how to relate to people in healthy ways, that we know who to fall back onto. Because you make the promise, you receive ordination, you receive the, the ontological change of the priesthood and your, your soul is indelibly marked with the sacrament of holy orders. Um, but as the archbishop reminded us bluntly, but with a little chuckle during the homily of our ordination masses, after today you will still be sinners striving to be saints. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot changes. People begin calling us father and looking towards us as father figures, especially those who don't know we were ordained just four and a half months ago. <laughs> you know. The relational needs are still there. You're still human. I'm still human. Yeah. And if I ignore that during my eight years, it was eight years for me, it's you know, seven to nine years or more sometimes for other men. If I ignore that part during my formation, I get into the parish and um, obviously without giving any details or whatever about confessions I've heard, stuff gets dropped onto us in confession. And if we don't know how to deal with that, or if we go into the confessional thinking, this is where I meet my needs for intimacy. Mm-hmm. People come to me, they need me. And I go in there and I receive all this stuff and I hold on to it because that, that's met my needs for intimacy. Or oh, we're missing the point and we're in a lot of trouble mm. because that is not the place for us to hold on to anything. It sounds almost sociopathic. Yeah, yes. <laughs> you know, if, if it's done on purpose. Right <laughs> the, yeah. the way I said it was a little bit creepy, I admit. Um, but it, it can also be done without even realizing it without even it's it's called submarining our way through the seminary it's it's very possible to do without even realizing you've done it is that you uh, we would uh, kind of feel like we've been formed already by our lives it it, uh, it can especially happen to not the older men the, uh, the older men have enough life experience to know how important it is for formation in the seminary to even admit that even at their age They've been through a lot, but they can learn more because their life is about to change dramatically as priests. The, the younger guys, some who haven't had quite as much experience, they're excited about the experience of the seminary and will enter into it for the most part. But it's probably guys like my age. You know, I entered at 25 after having had some relationships and, and you know, having you know, tried to surf my life away for a few years mm-hmm. and kind of seeking direction and whatnot. Guys my age who feel like we have the, fig- the world figured out and I know just the kind of priest I want to be when I enter the seminary. So I'm going to just focus on those things and just submarine my way through the seminary so that I can come out the other side the way that I, wanted to, that I want to. Mm. It's a temptation. Mm. I, you know, I can't say it's definitely happening, um, but it's a temptation for seminarians to, uh, to kind, of, you know, kind of fight against the formation they're receiving so that they can come out the other side the way that they came in. That's dangerous because if, if one has not 
come out as a priest for different reasons than they entered as a seminarian. There's been no growth, mm-hmm. and that's not good for the people of God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and uh, ultimately, it's dangerous for them, too. So if one submarines their way through the seminary and doesn't realize the, their, their intimacy needs, uh, because, oh, I'm going to be celibate. I don't need to be intimate with anybody. Mm-hmm. That's a big mistake. Yeah, because yeah. that is, for one, assuming that intimacy is physical alone. Right. Which, right. of course, the world has backwards anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, uh, and so that's, that, you know, rest assured, that is one of the things they are pounding through us in, in the seminaries, is our need for intimacy. Mm-hmm. And we sit there like, ugh, emotions. God, <laughs> what do you mean, you know, what, what color are my emotions right now? You know, what do you mean... <laughs> What, what's my weather like right now? You know, okay, so there are probably better ways we could have done that part. <laughs> um, and we can laugh about it. But then we get out of the seminary, see the way that our emotions affect the way that we relate to our people, minister to our people. Mm. We go, oh my gosh, I wish I'd paid more attention during seminary right. when they were telling me, uh, you know, this is what's going to happen when you sit down in a confessional and no matter what comes at you, certain feelings from your own past and your own experience is going to come up. And if you don't know how to handle those, mm-hmm. That's dangerous for the people, and it's dangerous for yourself. So, um, I think there's a, a great improvement among the the younger priests, the priests who've just been ordained. Like we want to make sure that the seminarians know this, and so we're meeting as a group every couple of months. All the priests ordained for Los Angeles over the last five years, just as, as a chance to catch up with one another, which is so good, but also to uh, remind one another why we're doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And, so good. Yeah. And to have that, that fellowship, you know, obviously not to share what's going on in the confessional, but, but to kind of share where we're at and how that stuff is affecting us. Right. So we have that community. You know, we have the freedom to not go, and some guys choose not to. But the, the guys who are there are, are really entering it in, into it, and it's, that is good for the Presbyterian of Los Angeles, I can tell you that. We've got a long way to go. Uh, it's so diverse. Uh, and we've all, you know, come through so much, so many different experiences uh, on our way to the priesthood that uh, it's good that we just get together and remind ourselves that we, we have friendship needs too. Oh, yeah. you know? mm-hmm. So that, that's just something I want the people of God in LA to know. And, you know every, everyone who, who has this, their priests on a pedestal, I'm not saying you know, kick them down a level, but, <laughs> uh, but that might do them some good. <laughs> um, but just to know that, uh, that those intimacy needs are important to us and it's dangerous, dangerous for us to ignore that, pretend it doesn't exist, and to believe that we're on that pedestal. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, I think that, um, that can get us in trouble if we, if we don't know where to go to meet those, those intimacy needs that we too have. Otherwise, we wouldn't be human. Right, yeah. right. a little bit more about your personal story? Sure. Um, gosh, I, I grew up such a shy kid, and a lot of that kind of still um, comes into my ministry. Um, just when I know, I know when I'm exhausted. I know when I can't stand being around people anymore. It's not that I hate being around people. It's just, it's exhausting. Yeah. Um, so um, so to, to grow up that way, and hey, you know, I have to admit, like there were certain ways I got involved in the church and in ministry in order to get the attention, mm-hmm. you know, growing up in a church family. Mm-hmm. Um, 
going to church every Sunday and, and, you know, at times trying to hide under the pillows in my bed, trying to like look like a pillow. So maybe we wouldn't go to church or something like that. Like, oh, there's Tim. I guess we're not going to church. Um, Did that ever work? It never was. <laughs> it, it made sense back then, but, right. you know, um, uh, but just to go to church and, and to experience the, the kinds of priests that we had, they were, they were so human, you know, I like to laugh with them. You guys are so imperfect. And they're like, we know. Um, but it was just such a beautiful witness. They'd be there every morning before school started, just greeting us on the yard. Um, so I just got this, you know, this sense of their presence, that they were around. Um, you know, and, and I had such, I, I have such great parents, always so present, and, you know, never feeling abandoned by my parents. And I know that's not the experience of so many men in the seminary. Um, but just to have, have that blessing um, and to see the examples of great priests, great preachers, uh, men who were always reminding us that the, the church isn't the building, the church is the people. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and to know that like, even at a young age, I'm part of the church. I, you know, I'm not the future of the church, I am the church. I'm part of the church now. And so to get involved in the church in that way and to just... You know, find an, an, an output for like those, those kind of uh, insecurities of mine, of the, the shyness and, and having trouble relating to people. It's a lot easier for me to get up in front of people and speak. It's a lot harder to have that one-on-one, even though it's more fruitful and I, I do appreciate it more now. But it was just easier for me to get to relate pe- to people when I could get, a, get up in front of people and give a a great talk or, or whatever, just share my story that, uh, so I have to admit, and this, you know, took years of seminary formation and, and kind of diving into why am I doing all this to, uh, to admit like, Oh, I loved going on retreats because of what I could get out of it. That's not all there was to it. You know, I genuinely wanted people to have the encounters that I had had, but that was how I built relationships was to be able to be up in front of people and be impressive because that's that was the only way for me to make friendships and, you know that's the best way that i knew how because i was so shy and and afraid of approaching people and, be, and being rejected that i could go up in front of people and impress them and all of a sudden everybody wants to know me and then some intimate relationships and friendships would come out of that yeah um, so that was a gift you know it wasn't you know, it wasn't entirely a bad thing but that kind of that kind of got me into ministry and and into um kind of giving my witness at, at different retreats and, and that experience of working with those retreats and working especially with youth ministry was kind of a, a beautiful uh, beginning of my vocation story of, of wanting to offer my life to God in this way. But for the longest time, I no way, I don't want to be a priest. And, and as soon as anybody would say, oh, you want to be a priest? Or you ever think about being a priest? I'm like, no, 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 no. I want to be like my dad. I want to have a family. I want to be able to raise them and be able to offer myself to them in that way. And I'll, you know, I, I wouldn't have used this language before, but I want to get my kids and my wife to heaven, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I, I, want to, I want to be able to, to become that self-gift that, that JP2 speaks about. And it's, it's all throughout the theology of the body that we are made to be gift to one another and to be able to pour ourselves out because that's what God is. That's who God is, is this, this constant outpouring of self-gift. We get to share in that. Okay, great. I didn't know all this theology back then, but that's what I wanted. Yeah. That's what I wanted. And so just to kind of look up at my dad for you know, my whole life, you know, I, the, the word that, that comes to mind, and I think I've said this in front of him before, so I, I don't, I don't, it doesn't make me feel super awkward, but just integrity. 
uh, is, is the word that comes to mind when I think of my dad. Uh, I guess there are a few things I disagree with him on, but that doesn't make him any less full of integrity because he is who he says he will be. Uh-huh. And it's, it's to have a, a father like that. Again, I know there are a lot of guys in the priesthood who didn't have that. Mm-hmm. A lot of guys in the seminary who didn't have that. So, uh-huh. um, so I count my blessings there and to want to be like my dad. You know, we found uh, my family was home for, uh, for my ordination, all my, my, my two brothers and my sister and uh, my brother's family. And we were all gathered around looking at old photos and stuff like that. And we found a picture of my dad. He must have been 17 or 18, sitting on his motorcycle in the desert. I'm yeah. just like, it's like the coolest looking. Like, this could be an album cover or something like that. Oh, that's my dad. Like, he used to be so cool. And so I went home like, Dad, look, he used to be cool. And, like, the next picture was him wearing, like, short shorts and high socks. And, <laughs> Fourth of July with That's with so his funny. with his four kids in tow. Like, Dad, what happened? Um, he had kids. Yeah, yeah. I, know, I know. And then he became cooler. You know. Um, so um, to look up to my dad in that way, who worked for forty years behind the same counter uh, in Santa Monica, running a business so that he could provide for his family, mm-hmm. so that we could all go to Catholic school for our, our whole you know school careers, and try to put me in in through college until I pretty much dropped out to take up surfing full time. <laughs> but just the, the self-sacrifice that my dad made, my mom too, for mm-hmm. sure. But, uh, but to look up to my dad and want to be that, that was, yeah. you know, you know it, as a kid having no idea what it took to be a parent, of course, but to say, hey, I want to enter into that adventure. So, so whenever somebody would say, hey, you ever thought about being a priest? Like, no way, no way. Well, maybe, maybe. But no, I want to be like my dad. I want to have a family, which you'll probably hear from a lot of priests if you ask me uh, of course there are some priests who their gift is definitely priesthood never any other thought which is beautiful sometimes i wish i could say that but that's not my story but i'm convinced that there are a lot of priests out there who make really great fathers and i mean you know biological fathers Mm -hmm. and i I think the best priests out there you know it's a generalization and all um, but uh, some of the best priests out there would make great dads yeah. And, yeah. And, and maybe that's what makes them appealing and, and being able to relate to families who are struggling and everything like that and in their joys too. Um, so that's what I wanted. And so I ran away from the priesthood. I, that's how I say it. Uh, for probably a good six or seven years after high school. Uh, got into Pepperdine, my dream school right after high school. I had no idea why I wanted to go there. Just like ever since fifth grade, I was like, I want to go to school at Pepperdine. So I got in. It was, it was amazing to be there. But I was living at home, and I was one of two freshmen in the whole class of like 800 students who was not living on campus. I don't even know how that happened, but it just it happened that way, and they let, let that be. We could barely afford the classes, let alone to stay on campus. So to be going to school there, but to feel so far out of the community, that was the last thing I needed. You know, as, as a shy kid who, who doesn't make friendships well um, and, and needs an identity and you know, kind of a built-in identity in order to have people drawn to him, that's the last thing I needed was to be in a big community and feel on the outside. So probably about halfway through that, that year, that's that struggle of like, I don't have any friends. One day I was just like, I'm going surfing. You know, I tried to pick it up during high school, but then just like at that moment, it's like, I'm going to take this seriously. And so I, I started surfing a couple times a week, a few times a week, every day, mm-hmm. two or three times a day, <laughs> every day of the week. So I was, you know, I was all in. So by the end of that first semester, I'd pretty much dropped out of school because I, I'd stopped going to classes. Wasn't going, to, you know, no way I was going to show up to finals. So I just, 
dropped out of my dream school in order to take up surfing, which sounds like a dream to some people. Uh, that was pretty exciting. But I also had to build up the courage to admit to my parents, look, this is not working out. I need to you know, take another path. And so got into community college, floundered around there for a few years, six or seven years, and just spent that whole time throwing everything I had into surfing. I remember taking a board to the face one time and uh, hit a huge gash right above my eye. I could have lost my eye. It was insane. You know, stitches and all this stuff. And and like the doctor literally tell me, you got to stay out of the water. And I'm like trying to get in the water that afternoon. Because like, <laughs> like I'm all in. This is, yeah. this is... This is my life. Like I pretty much... I, um, <laughs> I told my, my, my girlfriend at the time... This girl that I was surfing with, and I said, if I can't go in the water, I've got nothing else. <laughs> Do you imagine your significant other telling you, <laughs> if I can't go surfing, I've got nothing else. Yeah, that's where I was at. That's where I was at, at the time. So just to, you know, be wrestling with that, like, all I wanted was to serve. That's just all I wanted. You know, I was still ministering in the church, still helping out with youth ministry. At that time, after, after that girlfriend, surfing was definitely first. Um, uh, I, I met another girl through ministry. It was so beautiful because like our relationship was built around bringing others to Christ. And, uh, but I was still surfing, and surfing was still coming first. You know, we, we would have an opportunity to just kind of spend some time together. And I, getting later in the night, I'm like, i like, I got to go home because i got to get up at 5 in the morning to be in the water before anyone else. Mm-hmm. You know, so that I can be in the water before I go work at a surfboard factory. You know, like, oh, tough life. But that kind of began to put this strain on our relationship. And it was a good relationship. The thing with adolescents these days, especially in men, is like it can go into like the 30s. Oh, yeah. Into the 40s. Into the 30s and 40s. So just like our ability to relate to other people in mature ways, it it, it takes pretty long time sometimes to to mature in that way. Um, Why do you think that is? uh, Some of the reasons that I've come across is... uh, a lack of like maturity rituals. Uh, That's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. yeah like for for men to become men, you know that. In a way, for society to tell men that they've become right. men like and how to do give you them feel that you're a man. Right, right, right. Can right. you measure that? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think the best way to speak of that is is responsibility. It's like how how are your mm-hmm. you know, how are you taking charge of your responsibilities? So, that's that's one of the main ways that this culture has kind of found ways to kind of abnegate responsibility. And I think that's one of the, the struggles that men have in, in maturing and being able to relate. Um, I mean, there's so many other reasons. One could be that, you know, we're, we're young men are growing up in a porn culture now where that, that so greatly hinders their ability to relate to people face to face. And when they relate to people face to face, there's something being, the brains aren't being rewired anymore. They're being, re- they're being wired this way. And, and because of that, the, the ability to relate in mature ways, it's, it's not happening. And, and because of that, you know, adolescence continues on and on and on and sometimes never ends. So I, I think those are some of the reasons that, you know, for perpetual adolescence or at least prolonged adolescence. And what it comes down to is our ability to relate to other people. Um, so it's, you know, responsibility is a word to be used, but the responsibility takes its expression and is formed by how we relate to to people in mature ways. And I think that's what's, what's missing the opportunity to do, to do that. Again, so many other reasons, but I think those are a couple of the most important reasons that are you know, affecting the way that men are growing up and, and their ability to relate, uh, relate to one another and, and to women in mature ways. So I mentioned that because you know, I'm six or seven years into college, which should have taken four. I'm floundering around, enjoying my surfing, yes, doing contests and all that stuff. 
trying to get into magazines, you know, but it's so exhausting because I'm like, I have to market myself. And that's the most painful thing for me to do um, is, is to try and make a, as much as like the only way I know how to get people to like me is to be impressive. And now that's kind of becoming my job and it's exhausting and I hate it. And, yeah. <laughs> and I've got this, this relationship with this girl that I, that I was doing ministry with. And I'm not growing up because I'm spending all my time trying to be impressive and to be noticed and living this perpetual adolescence through the surfing life. And I, we, we get to a point as a couple where we recognize that this is happening, not just in me, but for her too. She, she has to uh, find her own way to grow up and it's not happening in this relationship. So it's kind of this, this mutual decision, although you know, as the perpetual adolescent myself, I couldn't come to the decision myself and, and make it happen. So it was you know, kind of her initiative. And it wouldn't be fair for me to say that, that she dumped me that's, yeah. that's not fair to her yeah. um, because it was something that was happening in our relationship together. Yeah. And, and so it was something that we, we agreed on. And so it wasn't a bad end to the relationship. It was something that needed to happen so that we can grow. And if we're going to get back together in the future, we need to mature and it's not going to happen in this relationship. That's what, that's yeah. kind of where we were at. So it was during that time that we were apart and she was at school just far enough away for it to feel like a distance relationship that we grew more distant and, but that was the space we needed in order to mature. And during that time, my discernment opened up even more towards the priesthood. And we had been talking about it a little bit beforehand. And I think that was causing some tension in our relationship because she was afraid of the priesthood. It became a rival to her, which is fair to speak of it that way, especially at the ages that we were that, you know, at our maturity level is for to see, you know, to see God as a rival to our relationship. That's, it's, it's, in a way, it's fair to, to speak of it that way, at least from my perspective. I agree. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that brought a little tension into our relationship. But for us to be apart and to agree that this is the time to seek our maturity apart from one another, that gave me a lot more space to, for discernment to the priesthood. I had the opportunity to, <laughs> to dive a little bit more into that and, and was reading these books about priests and their time in the seminary. And everything started to become more real. Like, oh, I could do this too. And so for the first time ever, like a, like a light bulb, I think of my light bulb moment, I was on a plane flying to North Carolina to see my brother and his wife have their marriage blessed in the church because they were about to have their first daughter and they wanted her to be baptized in the Catholic church. So they wanted to have their marriage blessed. And my brother's wife was going to be welcomed into the church at Easter. And it was so beautiful. And on the plane flight over there, knowing that I was going to witness a sacrament like that, reading this book about a priest in his seminary time and how, how beautiful and, and how much, you know, Freedom there was in obedience and, and the other evangelical counsels of, 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 of poverty and obedience and chastity. It just struck me like, I wanted to do this. I finally wanted to do this. Mm. You know, I know God's been wanting me to do this for a long time, and I've been running away a long time, but he finally mm. wants me to do this. And on that plane flight over, I made the decision I'm going to become a priest, which is pretty dramatic because I didn't realize it, took, it would take me eight years through seminary. Um, I didn't even know how soon they would let me into the seminary, but... Just to have that revelation, like, oh, I finally want to do this. I, well, it was not really a revelation so much as I'm finally admitting it to yeah. myself. Yeah. I've been running away, and so I finally admitted it to myself. And I don't know what it's going to take, but that God, this is what I want to do. I finally can say this is what I want to do. Yeah. So I spent the week over there not telling anybody about it, just mm-hmm. kind of praying about it, witnessing my, my brother and his wife have their marriage blessed in the church. And, you know, I had the chance even to talk to the priest, but I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to talk to anybody about it. I just wanted to dwell in that moment and, and in prayer for that week. And it was around Palm Sunday, and so we got home closer to Easter. Told my parents I wanted to be a priest on Easter. 
So it's like, oh, super dramatic. And I guess, yeah. You might notice that's how I do things. Um, so, but I had no idea where to go from there. I was like, I want to be a priest. And I had no idea where to go from there. I just, at some point in my life, I want to be a priest. And they were super supportive and they always have been. But when I had made that decision, I didn't know of the best way to tell my, at the time, ex-girlfriend. So it just kind of slipped out one time while I was talking to her on the phone because we were still talking a lot, knowing that we were such good friends and we were so close. It was like two weeks away from her coming home from school for, va- for spring break. And like, I could have waited, but I was just like, I think I'm going to enter the seminary. And, uh, and so she didn't want to talk for a little while after that because it just it hurt her so much, especially the way that I did that. I know I've, I've dwelt on that enough to, uh, to know that there, there was no better way for me to do it at that time. I wasn't mature enough to realize the impact it would have on her. I was just so excited for myself. But to not be aware of the impact it would have on her. And so there were a couple weeks there where we didn't speak to each other. And that was really painful. I'm like, oh, what I need right now is a friend. Yeah. Um, but, you know, not knowing why is she so mad at me? And, and it's almost to the point of being like obtuse. Like I don't even, you know, it's like, like, like radically misunderstanding that, you know, the, the impact I have on people. Oh, what reason could she possibly yeah. have? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Upset. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wrote a letter to her, literally sat down and wrote a letter pen and paper and mailed it snail mail and I just wanted her to see how important my decision was to me but how important she still was as a friend she actually uh, gave me that letter a couple weeks ago to reread it to remind myself where I was at that time I haven't read it yet it's, it's, it's up in my room it's not like she was trying to like you know throw some revelation on me or she just thought it'd be good and, and I'm just not ready to read it yet yeah I will be Maybe now that I've reminded myself that it's up there waiting for me, I'll, I'll take a look. But, Why do you um, think it's holding you back? Really? I don't like looking at my past super honestly sometimes. Yeah. Um, like, yes, I can tell this story. I've told this story a bunch. But I'm afraid of looking at that letter and seeing like how needy I may have been at the time. Mm-hmm. And that scares me. Yeah. And let me be honest about that. Because you know, yeah. I don't like how needy I was and how immature I was back then. Yeah. And in 20 years, I'll look at myself now and be like, God, he was trying to be impressive all the time. He was so needy for attention. Yeah. And I don't want to look at that. I know I will, yeah. that, that it's my vocation. Part of my vocation is to be able to go into those moments with other people. And if I can't do that by myself, then I've, I've got issues. So I, it will happen. Probably you like to focus that you are moving forward right. and growing. Right. Yes, yeah. yes, but I can't. That can't be my only focus. Yeah, you know, you know I'd love to be so confident as Saint Paul is like I consider everything that I once had to be rubbish, and you know now I'm all about moving forward to the glory that God has in front of me. But yeah, yeah. So when I when I'm ready, I'll, I'll read that letter and have to be able to kind of laugh at myself, or maybe I'll find something profound in there that will remind me why I'm doing what I'm doing. Or, but, you, or see yeah. how much you've changed. Yeah, yeah. And she's so spirit led that I'm just like it. Um, it humbles me. So I know she didn't give me that letter on a whim. I think it's important for me to read it, and she knows that. So when I'm ready, I'll, I'll take a look at it and be reminded of where I was as that early twenties something kid who wasn't ready to grow up who had not grown up, but was ready to start doing something to grow up. So obviously, we're such good friends now, probably closer now in our relationship and and being able to challenge each other and and be honest with each other than we were when we were dating. I give all of that credit to to Mama Mary and and just knowing, you know, what her son needs relationally. 
in my friendships, that Mama Mary knows what I need in my friendships and, and is willing to take me by the hand and, and draw me into those places, sometimes dark, sometimes difficult. But I, I was praying so desperately to her, like, like, Mama Mary, help me out. I just, I don't know what I've done, but help me see and, 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 and help lead me to these right relationships so that I might draw other people to your son. So, so we're, we're good friends. And that's, that's just, that's God healing relationships. And I, so I know it happens. I know it happens. She wrote me back, and so there was this back and forth, like letter writing. But we still still weren't talking. We still needed that space where you know we could be more deliberate about what we had to say, rather than to say something on a whim and and say something wrong. So this gave us more time for for our thoughts to abide, rather than to just throw them out there too quickly, too hastily. But then the, the friendship it, it took some time for it to to heal as we both uh, you know, experienced growing up a little bit, her, her graduation, and then I still had not gone back to school, but I didn't graduate from college until my um, seminary days. So I graduated from college 10 years after I started, but there was a lot of surfing in between there and uh, a lot of chance to mature and, and to let God do, you know, be that, that chisel to you know, throw spiritual directors into my life who would chisel away at me. I'm like, God, this is so painful. Why do you have to... <laughs> and to be like mad at my spiritual directors because of where they were drawing me into relationally. And I, I would just find my spiritual director in the seminary. He comes off it as, as a little bit gruff at times and tough as nails. <laughs> but you get him talking about love and, and it's almost like a teddy bear, you know? It's... Um, it's just the, the best thing. Um, but he was drawing me into places, you know, with my relationship with God and my relationship with other people, and especially this relationship that I was just talking about, to, to make me see where were the places where I was, like, reaching for affirmation, where are the places that, you know, you know, that I still have to mature in the way that I relate to people. And it was so challenging because I thought, like, oh, I'm in the seminary. I've got it made. I know how to relate to people. And then to get, like, to the last couple years of seminary and be like, I've just, I've kind of, like, taken steps backwards. <laughs> And God being like, oh, well, good thing you finally realized that because now it's time to do the tough work because once you get into this ministry, you're not going to have as much time to do that work. It's time to do it now. And so the last couple of years of seminary, but to also have that friendship there uh, with her to uh, you know, remind me of where I'd come from, but to also keep me on my toes. And she's like, you're doing this again. You know, your, your obtuseness is, is making itself known again. Uh, pay attention to the way that you affect people. And um, so the last couple of years of seminary were really challenging relationally. School is easy. You know, I, I, I could go back to school and just be so comfortable. But to be here in the parish, though this is what I've been waiting for for so long, it's a lot harder um, because school is far more predictable. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, yeah people are not predictable. Right, right. right. I mean, they are yeah. serious yes, for yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. 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 So just to um, spend those last couple years of the seminary just in so much like relational pain, but in like fruitful, a fruitful way, you know, not, not suffering for suffering's sake, but you know, this is, this is what it's like to grow in love is, is to learn how to be more, more of a self gift rather than to constantly be receiving. But also there's the, the really challenging aspect of love that is receiving love. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's one of the dangers in ministry and 
one of the, the most important aspects of being able to have intimacy in ministry is to be able to receive that love from the right people from the, in healthy ways. Yeah. I always go back to the, the washing of the feet in John 13, you know, the night before Jesus dies. He, there's something pretty important about anything he says or anything he does the night before he goes to the cross. Um, you know, the, the words where he's, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, how is that? Look for the way that he's the way, the truth, and the life. And what he's about to do that next day, that's what we're called to do, is that self-gift on the cross, okay? Okay, well, he's washing feet now, and this is so terribly embarrassing for us and for him. But pay attention, because this, this is the most important night. And what he's about to do is that these are the most important things he's about to do and about to say in all of his ministry. And what does he do? And it's, it's, it's like my favorite, one of my favorite lines in all of scripture. It says that, you know, the father, had, he had come from the father and was going back to the father. And the father had placed everything in his hands and he could do anything he wanted. You know, he could, he could call down the angel armies to protect him from the cross. He could, he could, you know, kick Judas out. He could make Peter have his feet washed. But what does he do? He's all the power in the world. And then the verse ends. And then the next verse is, and he got up from dinner, took off his outer garments, filled a bowl with water, grabbed a towel, put it around his waist, and washed the feet of his disciples. But it's that encounter with Peter that strikes me every time. Is Peter's like, no, Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, what are the reasons? Like, he's embarrassed for Jesus. Jesus, stop embarrassing yourself. Or he's embarrassed for himself. Like, Jesus, you don't want to see my feet. I don't want you to get that close to me. And so that, that moment where... Peter is telling Jesus, no, don't wash my feet. Don't get that close to me. You don't get to come that close to me. I'm the rock. I'm supposed to be out there ministering. I'm supposed to be out there saving the world, right? Um, and Jesus says, no, you can't, you can't give what you not first received. You, know, you have no inheritance with me if you don't let me do this. Oh, my gosh. And it's this challenge that I, I'm just constantly calling people into and myself over and over again is that you can't give what you haven't first received. You can't be welcomed into people, the intimacy of people's lives if you don't know how to deal with it, if you haven't experienced it yourself. I, I saw this in, in, in real life, like the actual chance to wash feet. You know, like on a retreat, we, you know, we create these moments mm-hmm. and people start thinking, oh, the retreat is like this created world where we've created this moment so you know how to, you can feel good about yourself so you can go home and be a better person. No, no, no. The retreat world is the real life. What we come back to is like this, this is, sometimes the delusion that we have that this is the real world and, and that that's somehow something we've created up there. So we're on this retreat and I'm ministering with a, a good friend of mine, this youth minister I look up to, one of my favorite youth ministers because he loves his teens and he wants them to know their love, not by him, but by God and by their families. And we, we're washing feet in a circle and so we're washing all the kids' feet and then it's my turn to wash his feet. And he's like, no, 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 bro, I already had my feet washed. And I looked down and his shoes are still on. I'm like, dude, that's not how this works. And he finally let me do it. You know, sometimes it's so easy to wash people's feet, to throw ourselves into ministry. Um, but he admitted to me later. And this is a guy who throws himself into ministry so beautifully. He said, I just, I don't like people when it, I don't know how to let people in like that. Mm. I was like, oh my gosh, this guy I look up to as a minister. And he's admitting to me that, that he has trouble letting people in. He loves to be let in and to pour himself out, yeah. but it's hard for him to let people in. And like, isn't that all of us? Yeah. You know? So that's, I think that's what it comes down to for, for priests and intimacy. I know I, 
I know I haven't said the word celibacy in the last like hour. <laughs> um, and sure, uh, but I think that's what we're talking about. Yeah. You know, celibacy is about intimacy too. And, oh, and if, if anybody out there is thinking that celibacy is about shutting that off, yeah. that's, that's the death of celibacy. Mm-hmm. You know, celibacy is that, that charism where, where you're, 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 the best image I've ever had of it is it's, you're not putting the fire out. You're, you're, you're setting it so hot that it purifies itself. That's awesome. Yeah. So has it been hard for you to maintain appropriate boundaries with these friendships, either with your ex-girlfriend or with others? I feel like there's been a great gift in my priesthood where it's the friendships have been healthy. Maybe that's just my obtuseness kicking in again. <laughs> I don't you know. Um, there, there have been friendships. I, I can't say too much about it. I'm still processing it myself. But like during the end of seminary where I'm, you know, I'm so close to priesthood and certain friendships are getting really close and intimate. And I'm, and I'm thinking, oh man, am I falling in love? Oh. How terrible, God, that that I'm capable of falling in love. Um, but it became that 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 became part of the chiseling to recognize it's not fair for me to do that to those people, to those friends, to become that intimate because I can't give that to them and I can't receive that because of the promises I've made. I don't like the way that that sounds, you know, because that's just because of the promises I've made, but because of the charism that I have received, not because I'm special. See ya. Charism from the Holy Spirit trying to build up the church that, is, that has been gifted to me in order to be a priest for the church is about, yes, renunciation, but it's also about reception. And so those relationships were really hard. I had to avoid some of them. I would at times come close to be like admitting my feelings, but I'm like, that's, not, that's just kind of to like fulfill my needs to be like, right. oh, do they feel the same? And so yeah. I'm just trying to be honest about what happens in a priest's heart with relationships. Right that things don't shut off at ordination. But we have to spend the time being honest with ourselves about how we relate to people beforehand, before we become priests. And it continues on in the priesthood. Um, but if we shut off our ability to love, we can't be priests. Yeah. I think that that's going to have to be my last word on that. Yeah. Is, is we can't shut ourselves off. Otherwise, we, we can't be priests. Yeah. Yeah. So, so pray for me that, uh, that I may be more of a, a gift, a self-gift to them. Um, to live out my priesthood and my celibacy through my ministry and my ability to uh, offer myself and, and the gifts God has given me to my people. What a gift it is. It's, it's not about giving something up. It's about, uh, there's a lot of reception that happens. So. That's a good word. Yeah. yeah. To end on. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, thank you so much yeah. for talking to us. Yeah. 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 I talked a lot. So um, thank you for the, the, the chance to, to be with you. It's, yeah. uh, it's, a, it's an honor to, listening to some of the, the other podcasts are like, oh, those are real experts on, on stuff. I just, you know, <laughs> all I can share is a few experiences where I've, I've screwed up. And, you know, well, uh, every person's an yeah, expert on yeah, their story. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> thank you again. Yeah, yes. thank you so much. Yeah. And thanks for coming on down. So. Yeah. Thank you for listening to our podcast. This has been another episode of Fishers of Men. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please email us at fishersofmenpodcast at gmail.com or find us on our website at fishersofmenpodcast.com. We are also on Facebook under Fishers of Men. 
Follow us on Twitter at at LA Gone Fishing or on Instagram at Fishers of Men Podcast. There is an underscore after each word. Please also remember to rate and make comments on iTunes if you feel so inclined. It's really important so that other people can discover our podcast. I'm Larson Mary Sams. I'm Mary Asher Burton. Until next time, keep swimming.